I'm going to talk about a miracle that happened back in 1984. So some of you weren't alive in this. Um, it was, they called it the miracle in Miami. It was Doug Flutie. He played quarterback for Boston College, and they were down to one last play, and he heaved it like 70 yards or something. And they scored a touchdown, and they beat the great Miami. And this is like just a few years after we got cable television in East Tennessee. And there was this wonderful, wonderful gift that God gave us all. Back in the day, it was a big deal. It was called ESPN, and you could watch... You could watch replays of, of plays just over and over again. And I will never forget that after that play happened, um, my friend and I from across the street, we, would, we just recreated that play over and over again, taking turns who got to be Doug Flutie. Because I had this field beside my house, and it was 45 yards long. We measured it over and over again. And just uh, we would just take turns heaving the football. And, ah, just going like crazy. But I just, I'll never forget... One of the things they kept saying about Doug Flutie was like, what a small quarterback he was. Like little Doug Flutie. And he was five foot ten. Oh, poor little diminutive Doug Flutie at five foot ten. Um, but then something happened the next year in the NBA that just blew everyone's mind. Um, Anthony Jerome Webb, who went by Spud. Yes, thank you very much. Five foot six, and he won the NBA slam dunk contest. Now, my house was also the house where everyone gathered for basketball because I had a big driveway with a, with a basketball goal. And this was back before, you know, these spoiled kid with, kids with their easily adjustable basketball goals. Like, we had to get a ladder out and a socket wrench and unscrew like four screws to move our basketball. It was hard and tedious. But we were like bumping that thing down to eight feet and we were all pretending we were Spud Webb because he was like our size. And we're out there slam dunking and pretending we're, like he was hero sized. Um, and then like Muggsy Bogues came along in the 90s and he was like five foot three and it was like Spud Webb's a giant compared to this guy. And now we got Lionel Messi, what's he, five seven? One of the greats of all time, five foot seven. We love the little guy story. We love Rudy coming into play, right? That went to the Notre Dame game. Like if I told you, let me tell you a story about a chicken who gets hit on the head with an acorn, you'd go, that sounds dumb. Oh, but his name's Chicken Little. <laughs> oh, well, that sounds interesting. Chicken Little, I'll listen to that. Um, I mean, that's the whole point of Hobbits, right? J.R. Tolkien wrote, he made the littlest, tiniest people in the story the heroes because he wanted to make sure people understood that it's the humble and the small who defeat evil. And... Our point for the day, it's not just who they were, it was where they were from. Like the Shire, where's that? What do they do there? Oh, they garden. <laughs> They're gardeners. Oh, we're going to send little bitty people who like gardening to defeat the greatest evil the world could possibly know. But that's the thing, right? They're, they are all the exception, aren't they? They're all the exception. And, and some of you think, well, at least we have baseball, right? No, 
The average baseball player in major leagues is six foot two. You don't know that until Jose Altuve comes along and you see him standing next to Aaron Judge and you're like, wow. I was, I was at Jose Altuve's first Major League Baseball game in 2011. It was me and Darby. She was nine years old. And we had tickets for that. And I'll never forget him coming up to the plate for the very first time as a Houston Astro. And it was actually kind of funny because there was cheering because there was huge expectation on this guy. But there was also kind of this thing with the women who were like, oh, look at him. And Darby was like, oh, he's cute. Look how cute he is, cutie pie. Like, he's so little, five foot six, you know? And it's like, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Come on, you know? He is the exception, right? And so this morning we think about, right, he's, and, and have you ever watched the videos of him going back home, right, to his little town, was Venezuela, where they learned to play with bottle caps and a broomstick? right? They're like flinging these bottle caps, boom, and they're hitting it with a broomstick. And you're like, where's that? How do you, how, right? So this morning, think about, think about my, one of my favorite Christmas songs, O Little Town of Bethlehem. O Little Town. <laughs> Small Town Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. This is, Bethlehem, we don't know you. You're nowhere. You're just tiny little town. The stars are going by. You guys are asleep. Just, just nothing. Yet, we throw the word yet in there. Oh, it's something going on in Bethlehem. <laughs> yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. Ah, this line. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Really? There? You couldn't pick a better town than Bethlehem? Right? Why the word yet? Because of the word little. <laughs> so we're in the middle of this series, second week, The Wise of Christmas. Sorry. Every time I say the word series, my iPad thinks I say Siri, and she pops up with all this stuff. I found a Christmas series, and she starts talking to me. Sorry about that. Oh, so annoying. I need to turn that off for her. <laughs> Don't you do that to me. Don't yell out. Yeah. Series. Um, the wise of Christmas. The four wise of Christmas. Um, and I know, I knew before I did this, I was thinking... Three wise men, four wise of Christmas, and I knew that something would happen. And, um, but we're just asking four why questions. Why questions are kind of silly if you're asking them, especially of God. And you know, you've, if you've had kids, they'll ask why questions until they're blue in the face. Because every why question is followed by why. Well, well, yeah, but why that? Well, because of this, but why that? Well, why that? Why that? Until finally, as a parent, what do you do? Just because I said... Just, 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 just did, right? And so there's a, there's a certain silliness to, to asking why of the ways of God. Right? His ways are beyond our ways. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. Um, but yeah, we are. And last week we asked, why then? Why at that time? Right? 
Galatians 4, 4. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Why then? We just kind of looked at that last year. Now today, it's going to be, why there? Why there? Why Bethlehem? And I think in asking the question, why Bethlehem, we really get to the heart of the way God works, why he works in who he works in, why he uses whom he uses, and the way he works the way he does. Um, Oh, little town. Um, We're going to go back to a minor prophet by the name of Micah. Micah, Micah tells us who he is in the very first verse. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth. You don't know where Moresheth is either, and I don't either. Um, and he just lists off the kings. Micah was a prophet for a long time, a couple of decades. He was right along there with Isaiah. But Micah just got like seven chapters, and Isaiah got 60-something. And, um, but he has this, this vision, and it says, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So you've got... Jerusalem here and Samaria just north of Jerusalem. And, and what's happening is Assyria is coming in and judgment is coming because Israel has become completely corrupt, completely idolatrous. Um, their judges are being bribed by rich people to make sure that they judge in their favor. All of their leaders are corrupt. The poor, the widows, the orphans, the the immigrants, the refugees are being taken advantage of. And judgment is coming because of that. And it says in, in verse 1 of Micah 1.1 that this is what Micah saw. And it's just these little short visions. We call them oracles. Um, and there's like 20 of them. And they just kind of come back to back to back. And... Judgment is at the door. This powerful, powerful nation of Assyria is coming out of the north, and they're just going to like pick off these little chunks of the northern kingdom of Israel, just, and they're just going to wipe it out and destroy, and they're just going to send these people back and all over. And Micah is a very bold, a very courageous, very in-your-face kind of prophet, and he's going to say this is exactly what's wrong here. I mean, we, you know the most famous verse in Micah. He has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. Like, you have ignored justice, and that's exactly what God wants. He wants justice. You've ignored mercy, and mercy is exactly what God wants. You have You've ignored humility. You've become prideful, and God wants humility. And so he's very courageous, but he's, he's also full of grief. He's almost like weeping over their condition. So Assyria is at the door. Literally, by the time Micah's done, right outside the door. And he uses Samaria as a great example because Samaria gets wiped out. And so he's like, hey, Jerusalem, do you see what happened to them? Do you want that to happen to you? Then you need to listen up. (laughs) And there's, 
There's a saying where the prophets are constantly saying, hey, listen, I know what you want to do. You want to run down to Egypt and get help. And Egypt's this pagan nation, and you think the pagans are going to save you because they're big and strong. No, 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 please don't. Let me save you. But this is how it's going to have to help happen. So Assyria's at the door. Now, if you were around during pandemic lockdown days, well, nobody was around during pandemic lockdown days. If you were watching online during those days and we went through the Minor Prophets, there was this familiar format to the Minor Prophets, and we're going to see it today in Micah 5. And that was, judgment is on the way, and it's going to be, the, it's going to be I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you, but it's going to be worse than you can imagine. God is going to send these people, and judgment's going to be bad. But at the same time, I want to give you hope that there is a Savior who's going to come, and there's a kingdom that's coming. And some of the, some of the pictures that the prophets give of this kingdom and of this Savior are absolutely beautiful. We have one of them today that we're familiar with. And so in this prophecy, um, we have this beautiful picture. It's in Micah chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. <laughs> With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, or Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of his, the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads on our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds, eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Israel with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our now, let's look, at this, let's look at this promised king and this ruler that, and what he looks like and, and how this, we won't get too much detail like how this is going to lay out, but he's promising a king and he's promised someone who's going to win, who's going to defeat these enemies. And he, he's, there's a very interesting picture. The two main words that are used of him is that he's a ruler, but he's a shepherd. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you will come forth from me, from me, from you will come one for me, one who is to be ruler, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, how does that even work, right? We, we saw this in Galatians 4. In fullness of time, he sent his son. Not he created his son, not he made his son, but he sent someone, which means he must have already existed. So he's saying here, I'm going to send you someone who's from eternity. I'm sending someone who's from eternity. 
His coming forth is from of old, from eternal days. And he's going to be a ruler. A ruler. He's going to be a king. He's going to be a conquering king. And the Assyrians will be no match. And he's going to bring peace to the land. He's going to have a sword in his hand. He's going to have people with him who have swords in their hand. And he will be a deliverer. So, you've got to imagine they're going, whew, that sounds good. These Assyrians are frightening people. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know about Hezekiah's prayer. We know that God wiped out 180,000 of them, and we know that they turned around. And we even know that archaeologists have found Sennacherib's writings in Assyria where he tells, I made it as far as Jerusalem, and they did not bow to me. <laughs> oh, okay. I wonder why that is. Um, you could go read that whole story. But someone's coming, and someone's coming into eterni- from eternity, and, and, and this one is coming in time, and he is a king, and he is a conquering king. But oddly enough, he will stand and shepherd his flock. So he's a shepherd king. And he will stand in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will dwell secure. And his name will be great to the ends of the earth. So he's going he's to bring nations into this. This isn't just about you little Jerusalem. This is about the nations. He's going to be shepherd king for the nations. Don't you love the picture of shepherd king? Like, we would never conceive of shepherd king. I mean, if it weren't for David, who we'll come back to in just a moment. But, like, you don't, you don't think of shepherd as someone with qualities that make them a king. You don't think of shepherd as someone that gives them qualities for anything but being a shepherd, Right? Like, yeah, so, so you, Exxon is looking for a new CEO. Man shows up, he's got a half of a page resume. Looking at your resume, I see you were a shepherd for the last 30 years. Yes, sir, that's about it. Yeah, shepherd, huh? Hey, listen, you've been around sheep. They're hard to deal with sometimes. They're going this way and that way. You've got to get them all together. And, you know, you've got to keep them fed. You've got to keep them happy. You've got to keep them out of trouble. It's a dangerous job sometimes, you know. Hey, man, I killed a bear with a slingshot. <laughs> you ever done that, Mr. CEO? That's what I thought. <laughs> I've even killed a giant with a slingshot, but that's a different different story. Like, we saw that from David. Like, he had all the qualifications. Like, he had done it all as a shepherd. He will stand and shepherd his flock as a ruler. And the strength of the Lord 
and the majesty of the Lord is God. That must have been so comforting. Like, he's not only going to have strength, he's not only going to defeat our enemies, but as a shepherd, he's going to comfort us, he's going to provide for us, he's going to bring us together, he's going to make sure we're taken care of. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. And he's going to lead us in a right path. Like, there's so much that comes into the word shepherd for these people. So God's going to send a shepherd king. What a promise, what a promise. So he's going to come from somewhere great, obviously. Yeah, Bethlehem. Huh? Bethlehem? Bethlehem, Ephrata. I did a wedding in Ephrata. It just hit me this week. It was at Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Nobody outside of Pennsylvania knows how to pronounce Ephrata, Pennsylvania. I learned that. You're going to where? Ephrathatha? Yeah, where is that? Yeah, it's in Pennsylvania. No, it's over there. It means fruitful. Bethlehem means house of bread. So, house of bread in the land of fruitful. So you already know we got something good going on. But Bethlehem, you are too little or seemingly insignificant, one Bible translation puts it, too small to be numbered. Not just, hey, you're small, but like too small. Now, if you did a word search on Bethlehem, you'd find it mentioned in places. But it's very interesting, like in Joshua 15, you know how when you're reading through your Bible for your, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and you come through those chapters where it's like, okay, and here's the clans of, and here's where they lived. And you feel pretty decent about skimming that chapter and still checking it off in your Bible reading, because you did. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, there was a bunch of cities. And well, in Joshua 15, um, Bethlehem doesn't even make the list. Like, it's just, we're not even going to mention Bethlehem. When Nehemiah brings people back from Babylon, and he makes a list, Bethlehem doesn't make the list then either. Like, Bethlehem is just an afterthought that's not even a thought. We do know this. When Rachel died, beloved Rachel died, she died in Bethlehem, and that's where she was buried. We do know that Ruth and Boaz were in Bethlehem. But let's, let's get real here. Who's, who's from Bethlehem? Where does Samuel go to find a king for Israel? It's Bethlehem. And it's a great picture of what we get from Bethlehem. You're going where to get a king? Bethlehem. Seems strange. There's bigger places. There's more significant places. Nope, you're going to Bethlehem. You're going to find this guy, Jesse. He's got these sons. Okay, I'll go in to get the sons. Oh, there's a good-looking son. Yeah, it's not him. Oh, let's bring in son number two. Oh, man. Whoo, this guy's, this is the man. Nope, not him. Okay, next son, next son, next son. We're out of sons. And even the dad doesn't believe it. 
You have any more sons? Well, really, are we really doing this? Okay, David, he's a little guy. He's out in the field with the sheep. He's a shepherd, so yeah, okay, bring him in. Oh, he's the one. (laughs) Really, the last son out tending sheep. Anywhere but Bethlehem, anybody but David. You can kind of see just with, when, when Micah starts the prophecy, but you, Bethlehem, you kind of go, oh, yeah, Bethlehem. We know what happens in Bethlehem. We know about the promise to David. We know about the city of David. And it's just amazing to me before I flip to the New Testament. The very last word in Micah, if you flip forward to Micah chapter 7, This is such a beautiful, beautiful ending. It's like this last expectation of this God who's going to judge, but this God who's going to bring a shepherd king. He says this, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance, who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. This God who has judgment at the door will not remember judgment forever. This God who is judging our sins will one day pardon. This God who is treading on our enemy will also tread on our sin. This God is a compassionate forgiving God, and he will show compassion. That is the expectation. A savior, shepherd, ruler, king is coming out of Bethlehem someday, and our God is a compassionate, forgiving God. So when you fast forward to that very familiar Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2, now after Jesus is born in Bethlehem and you realize all the things that God arranged to even get this couple to Bethlehem because they didn't live in Bethlehem, but there had to be a census and they had to go there because it was the city of David and they were in the line of David and all this stuff that God worked out. Herod, the king, is back in Jerusalem and the wise men show up from the east, and they say, hey, where's the one born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Little did they know they were asking the exact wrong person that question. As a matter of fact, this is the worst person they can ask this question. This is the most... paranoid, powerful man. He will kill anybody to maintain power, including his own family members. Historians said it's better to be his pig than to be his son. And they want to know, hi there, Mr. Herod. Where's the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star. Herod's got to be thinking, a king has been born and he has a star. I don't have a star. Someone get me a star. (laughs) Like you can feel the jealousy and the anger rising up in Herod. 
We've come to worship him? Worship? For real? Nobody worships me unless I make them. As a matter of fact, the story goes that when Herod knew he was going to die, he took a bunch of priests captive and he told his men, when I die, kill all these priests so that people will be mourning. At least they'll be sad when I die. It won't be about me, but they'll be sad. <laughs> and what does it say when Herod heard, the king heard this? He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Oh no, Herod's troubled. Herod's angry. <sighs> and it says he assembled the chief priests and scribes of the people and he inquired of them. And you can just imagine the innocent wise men. We just came looking for the king. We were just following that star. What did we say, right? And they're just going, <laughs> okay. And he asked the people where the Christ was to be born. Isn't it interesting? He knew the word. He knew this messianic king expectation. And they told him in Bethlehem, because the prophet said, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, not by no means least among the rulers of Judah, interesting wording there, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He told the wise men, you know, he's trying to figure this out. Okay, go to Bethlehem, find him. Isn't this fascinating that the, that the scribes quoted Micah and they knew exactly where it would be? This blows my mind because you would think the scribes would have people stationed in Bethlehem, like just waiting. Hey, any news on a shepherd king? Any news on that prophecy? You would think they would have just like just eyes and ears on Bethlehem for hundreds of years waiting for this to happen. You'd think there would be a special station in Bethlehem. Nobody's waiting. Nobody there but shepherds. <laughs> Nobody there but shepherds. How ironic. Yeah. <laughs> In the city of David, the house of bread, the bread of life comes into the world. This guy's going to be awesome because he was born in Bethlehem, said no one ever. <laughs> no one measures the greatness of Jesus, the shepherd king, based on where he came from. Right? Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Why there? Because that's how God does it. It's the opposite of that. Nobody says, oh, he's going to be great. He came from a great place. Nobody, nobody says, oh, that Jesus must be great. Look at where his followers are from. Look at how great his followers are. Boy, he picked some good ones. <laughs> right, that's just, that's how he does it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. This is, we'll finish with this passage because this is just, this is, this is so like Bethlehem. This is the most Bethlehem passage, only it's the Apostle Paul all these years later. 
And he's saying this to the Corinthians who lived in this, this great city. But he's talking to the church. And I kind of wonder if someone's standing and reading this, if the people may have felt a little insulted, but maybe not. And they were like, yeah, okay, we get this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Now, like if I stood up and said that, you know, let's consider who's in the room this morning. Can we just be honest that not many of you were that wise according to world? I mean, that sounds insulting, but he's making a point. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards of wisdom. Not many of you were powerful according to worldly standards of power. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why is he choosing the weak and the foolish, the low and the despised? Why Bethlehem? Why shepherds? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no human being will go, well, of course you chose me. Look how smart I was. Who wouldn't? Of course you chose me. Look at the family. Of course you chose me. I had power in this world. Surely I was on the A team. Right? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Who is my wisdom? Jesus is my wisdom. Who is my righteousness? Jesus is my righteousness. Who is my salvation? Jesus is my salvation. Who is my sanctification? Who's going to make me more like him? Jesus is going to make me more like him. Who's going to redeem me? Jesus is going to redeem me. Why? So I can't brag about any of it. He gets all the credit. Why Bethlehem? So Jerusalem doesn't get the credit. So nobody gets the credit. It's just Bethlehem. Exactly. <laughs> Why shepherds? Exactly. God does not need great people from great places to show how great he is. He just needs small people from small places to show how great he is. And I know we like, oh man, we, we see in social media some great person meets Jesus and we're like, oh man, this, the kingdom of God is about to get turned up to 11 and we are going to, Jesus is about to take over the world. We got Kanye. Okay, I'm kidding. But I'm just serious. It's like, it's like we just get super excited Right? It's like, oh, they're going to believe Jesus now. We got someone great on our team. And it's like, it just, 
It's just like, haven't we not learned our lesson by now? Come on. It's just Bethlehem types is what he's looking for, right? So that he gets the glory. And we don't even have to boast. Who wants that kind of pressure, right? He is our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. He is our wisdom. He has become all of that for us. So why Bethlehem? He gets the glory. He gets the glory. Let's pray. Lord, um, we're happy to give you the glory. We don't want none of that. We don't have the strength. You got it. We can't even make ourselves more like Jesus. But you can. You can. We trust you for that because we trusted you to redeem us. We trusted you for that. We trusted your righteousness before God. We trusted you to say not guilty. We trusted you to forgive us, to tread on our iniquities, to have compassion on us. What good thing do we have in our lives that we didn't trust you for? Like when all's said and done, we just boast in you. Every good thing has come from your hand. We got nothing, nothing to brag about. nothing. So Lord, help us to be humble before you. Help us to be small before you. If we need to be foolish before you, then so be it. Um, Thank you, God, for making it this way. If you had made it the opposite way, we'd all be in trouble. We just praise you for this. We praise you for Bethlehem. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're shepherd and you're king, that you're powerful and you're compassionate, that you rule and you're merciful. You're everything we could ever need or want. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Sunday Morning at Creekside Church in Spring, Texas. We're glad you joined us. For more information, please check out our website at www.mycreeksidechurch.org.